Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the first chapter, verses 9 through 11 today. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I know that many of you have said that you're hoping that we can get back to doing this in person, and uh, I'm looking forward to that as well, although I know that we do have a number of people who, as I said, are zooming in from across um, the Atlantic Ocean and some that are zooming in from Beaufort and other places. So um, while we may um, certainly go back to doing this live and in person, perhaps we will continue to Zoom for those who are far off as well. We'll see how that works. Um, but we, we're so delighted to have you with us today, no matter where you're from. So welcome. Uh, we are studying Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We have for the past several weeks been looking at the introduction to the letter. We said even though these are just sort of introductory remarks that Paul is making to the Philippian church, nevertheless, there is a great deal of theology, a great deal of doctrine here. It's packed full of really powerful teaching, and we've been looking at some of that. Last week, we took a look, for example, at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the idea that those who are in Christ will indeed persevere to the end, but not so much because they persevere, but because it is Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, persevering within them, and so they will press on to the end. Well, today we're going to take a look at verses 9 through 11. Paul, again, is still speaking to the Philippian church in these introductory comments, but one of the things that he throws out is that he is praying for them. Now, from time to time, we will say to our brothers and sisters in Christ that we are praying for them, um, but Paul, which is very helpful here, is very specific. He doesn't simply say to the Philippians that he is praying for them. He tells them specifically what he is asking God to do. Um, he is asking for some very specific things, some very particular things, and those are the things that we want to take a look at today. So verses 9 through 11, a brief section, but nevertheless, as we will see, it is packed full of information. And then if we finish with this section, we're going to go on and read verses 12 and following, verses 12 through 14. So let's just read these verses together. Paul writes, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is saying that he is praying for the Philippians. That is a great encouragement to them. He, of course, had established this church on his second missionary journey. We talked about that. Paul was their father in the faith. He was the one who first brought to them the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he reminds them that just as they had not forgotten him in his imprisonment in Rome, so he had not forgotten them. In fact, he says he continues to pray for them. He regards prayer as a great privilege, and he remembers the Philippians every time 
he prays. Now, what is Paul praying for? Well, he prays that they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And for Paul, what that means is that he wants the Philippians to live the good life. Now, you're familiar with that phrase. We talk about the good life quite a bit, at least in American society. But when we think of the good life, what we generally mean is the affluent life. I've sometimes said that when parents have children uh, today, one of the things that they want is for their children to live the good life. And so they'll start their children off in the educational system at a very young age. Uh, if you're anything like me, I didn't go to school until I was five years old. We went to kindergarten, and that's when we started. But now we have preschools today. And so children oftentimes start out when they're two years old. They're not even potty trained yet, but we're putting them in schools. And the whole point of putting them in schools is so that they can be prepared for elementary school. And the whole point of a good elementary school, we want to put them in a good preschool so they can get into a good private elementary school. And there in that private elementary school, they can have a very good education so they can go on to a high school or a, a, a secondary school, a middle school, a high school. And the whole point of that high school education is to do what? To get the kind of education whereby they can get good SATs or ATC scores. And the whole point of those scores is to do what? To get into a good university or into a good college. And the whole point of the university and the college system is what? So that they can get a good job. And the point of a good job is so that they can do what? Make good money. And the point of good money is to do what? To live the good life. And we define the good life in Western society today as the freedom to do whatever you want. But it's important to understand that when Paul was talking about the good life, that's not what he meant. As a matter of fact, Paul really didn't have any of the things that we would consider to be the trappings of material wealth. And certainly Jesus didn't have any of those things. Jesus himself admitted that the Son of Man did not even have a place to lay his head. So it's important that we understand that when Paul is hoping that the Philippians will live a good life, what he's talking about really is a godly life. And indeed, that's where that word good comes from anyway. It comes from godly. So when Paul talks about the good life, that's what he's praying, that the Philippians may live a life that is, reflect, is a reflection of their relationship with God. Paul wanted the Philippians to understand, and indeed he wants us to understand, and you've heard me say this many times before, that they had not only been saved from something, namely from judgment and wrath and death, and given the hope of eternal life with Christ, they had not only been saved from something, they had been saved for something. And that something was not simply the hope of heaven. Now, that's what many people think. You become a Christian so that when you die, you get to go to heaven. And, and certainly that is a benefit of having a relationship with Christ. But Paul makes it very clear in other places, particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, that God has not only saved us for the future, He has saved us for the present. Keep your fingers in Philippians, if you will, and turn back to Ephesians for just a moment. It's only about two books back, Ephesians chapter 2. This is that great section in which Paul talks about justification by grace through faith. Uh, this is that great doctrine of the Reformation. Martin Luther called it the doctrine of the standing church by which he meant it was on this doctrine that the church stands or falls. How are we saved? Are we saved by virtue of anything we do 
or are we saved by virtue of what Christ has done, which we receive by faith? And when he said by faith, he meant faith alone, sola fide. And Paul spells that out in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what he says in verse 8, for by grace, that is God's undeserved, unearned favor, you have been saved through faith. Faith is the conduit by which we receive that grace. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. Now, many people know those two verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. They're highlighted in many people's Bibles. I'm saved by grace, not by my own works, not by my own striving. I am saved entirely by the unmerited, undeserved work of God received by faith. Hallelujah. That's good news. But they skip the next verse. What does the verse ne next verse say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is saying you're not saved by your works, but that doesn't mean that works have no place in the Christian life. We are saved by grace through faith, but we were created, we were reborn, recreated, new creations for good works, that God intended that we should walk in them. The best way, I think, to describe this is to say that you and I, when we come to know Jesus Christ, when we are saved by grace through faith, we become a part of God's family. Now, Paul makes this very clear back there in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, that you and I, simply by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, are not children of God. You've heard me talk about this before. We are creatures of God, but we only become children of God how? By grace, by adoption. God adopts us into his family by grace. So you and I become members of God's family, but while we become members of his family and God is our father, being a member of the family is not enough. Any responsible parent, any responsible father or mother wants their child to make a contribution to society. The last thing we want is for our children to become selfish, turning inward, only concerned with self, only concerned with their own security. Any responsible parent, yes, is delighted to have their child around them, part of their family, but they want that child to grow up to be responsible, to live a productive life, a life that makes a difference. And that's what Paul was praying for the Philippians. Yes, they had been saved. They had been transferred from the realm of this world into the realm of God. They had become members of God's family, but he makes it very clear. He wants them to grow up into the full stature of Christ and become productive, responsible citizens of the kingdom of God. So that's what he's praying for. Now, Paul's prayer for the Philippians is the same prayer that he would have for you and for me. That's what God desires for every single one of us, to grow up, to live productive lives. It may mean that we're not successful in the eyes of the world, but we're living as responsible citizens of the kingdom of God and members of Christ's family. Now, how does that happen? Well, that's why Paul prays for some very specific things. That's what he's praying for in general. But in order for that to happen, he asks for some very specific things, three specific things in particular. First of all, he asks 
that their love may abound more and more. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Paul understood that love is the supreme Christian virtue. If you claim to be a Christian and there is no real love in your life, then something is tragically wrong. In fact, Paul would go so far as to say, you probably are not a Christian. Because to be a Christian means to be united to Christ, and Christ was love personified. Turn, if you will, to 1 John chapter 4. It's toward the right in your New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4. John wrote a number of books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, of course. He also wrote the book of Revelation, but he also wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to take a look at 1st John almost toward the end of the New Testament, 1st John chapter 4, verses 7 and following. And listen to what the Apostle John says. He says, Beloved, now he's writing to the church, so he's writing to Christians. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, John is saying one of the evidences that you really are a child of God is that love is evident in your life. Anyone who does not love does not know God. There it is. That's about as plainly stated as it can possibly be. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I don't think it could get any clearer than that. John is saying, love, as I said, is that supreme Christian virtue. So it should be no surprise to us when we turn back to Philippians that of all the things that Paul prays for in terms of living the godly life, the first thing that he asks for is that their love may abound more and more. 
Now, in one of his other letters to the church in Colossae, Paul speaks of love binding all things together. And if you think about some of the Christian virtues, as wonderful as they may be, joy is a Christian virtue, for example. Truth is a Christian virtue. Holiness is a Christian virtue. Mission is a Christian admonition. We are called to be missionary people. Unity is a mark of the church. But think about all of these wonderful things minus love. If you take love away from any one of those Christian virtues, what do you end up with? Something that is actually quite ugly. Think about joy. If you have joy, but you take away love, what do you end up with? You end up with self-centered behavior. Because the whole point of joy is what? To satisfy oneself. Think about truth. Truth is a wonderful thing. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But if you take love out of truth, what do you get? You get bitter orthodoxy. It may be the truth, but it certainly isn't good news. Think about holiness. Someone following all of the commandments, trying to live up to the expectations of what you find in the Old Testament scriptures and in the New Testament scriptures. But if you take holiness, following all the commandments, and you remove love, what do you end up with? You end up with Phariseeism, self-righteousness. You know those people who are always wagging their finger. What happens when you take love out of mission? You end up with colonialism. You end up with imperialism. What happens when you take love out of unity? You ultimately end up with tyranny. Because what happens is that it is a forced unity. The majority will force their agenda on the minority because love is no longer a part of the equation. You see, love, Paul says, is the thing that holds it all together. Joy plus love is not self-centered, it's self-sacrificing. Truth plus love is not bitter orthodoxy, it's good news. Holiness plus love is not self-righteousness, it is the light of Christ. See, love is that which holds all things together, and it is the supreme virtue of the Christian life. But Paul wants us to understand that when the Bible speaks of love, it doesn't mean what the culture means by love. It's really interesting the way he puts it. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and with all discernment with knowledge. It's an interesting word that Paul uses there for knowledge. It's the Greek word epignosis, and it is a word that Paul uses only in terms of spiritual matters. In other words, the love that you and I are supposed to have is one that is not simply an emotion. It is grounded in eternal truths. It is love as God defines love. Up there on your screen, you'll see that I put Tina Turner versus 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, you all know who Tina Turner is, and she, she sings a wonderful song. It's really catchy. 
You're gonna, you have to watch out you don't get a speeding ticket as you're driving down the highway singing this song. But what does she say? What's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Now, what she is describing is love as an emotion. And we all know that emotions are things that ebb and flow, aren't they? I mean, there are times when we're in the mood for a happy movie. And so we'll turn on something that is exciting and lighthearted. There are other times in our lives when we're sort of in a somber mood and we want a tearjerker. And so we'll get out the Kleenexes and we'll watch a movie that, that really tears at our hearts. But we know that those emotions ebb and flow. And that's the way our culture looks at love. In fact, that's the way we talk about love. We talk about love as something that happens to us almost by chance or by accident. We talk about falling in love, for example, or falling out of love, like falling down a flight of stairs or falling into a mud puddle or falling out of a chair. That's the way we speak of love. But that's not the way Paul understood love, and it's not the way he describes it in the New Testament. The most famous section, perhaps, in all the New Testament on love is that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's often read at weddings. For love is patient, love is kind. You know, now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. But when you actually listen to what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what you quickly realize is that love, the kind of love that Paul says triumphs over everything else, the kind of love that is eternal, when everything else passes away, this remains. That kind of love, Paul says, is hard work. Love is always patient. How many of you are always patient? Love is always kind. How many of us are always kind? Whenever I preach on this text at a wedding, I always say, here's one for the ladies. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And here's one for the men. Love is not easily angered. Now, when you begin to look at love in that way, you quickly realize that that kind of love is not something that comes to us naturally. It is a divine love. And indeed, the word that Paul uses there in 1 Corinthians 13 is a very specific Greek word. It is the word agape or agape. It means a self-sacrificing, self-emptying kind of love. The Greeks had a number of words that when they're translated into English are translated as our word love. But the one that is used in the New Testament to describe the love of God, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and the word that Paul uses to describe the kind of love that you and I are to have for each other, and indeed for our enemies, is a very specific kind of love. It is a self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. It is the love that thinks not of one's own well-being, but of the well-being of others. So when he says, I want your love to abound, he's talking about a very specific kind of love, a love that is grounded in knowledge, spiritual knowledge. And it's not just this specific kind of love. It is a love that he says is also discerning. Discerning, or I would go so far as to say discriminating. You know, we know that a person who has discriminating taste we say they have fine taste, taste in fine things. You have discriminating taste when it comes to wine. You have a very discriminating palate when it comes to wine. That means that you have a very sophisticated view of things. 
Paul says the same thing is true of the kind of love that God wants us to have. Now, I realize that when you use that term love and the word discrimination in the same sentence, it almost sounds oxymoronic. It almost sounds as though that's a contradiction of terms. In our way of thinking today, love means accepting everything and anything. Now, that's one of the things. You're, you know, we're living in this, this society that, with the woke culture. And, and we are reticent to, to judge anything or, or to declare anything to be superior to something else. But it's important to understand that when Paul talks about love, that is exactly what he expects us to do. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 12. Again, toward the left in your New Testament to Romans chapter 12. Paul is talking about love. You're going to find that he talks about love all throughout his letters. It's not just something that's confined here to Philippians. He talks about it in so many of his letters. We saw in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it here in Romans chapter 12, because it is, as I said, a mark of the Christian life, the supreme mark of the Christian life. But I find it very interesting the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12. Here's what he says. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good. Now, the reason I like this particular verse is because Paul speaks of love, and yet he speaks of hate in precisely the same sentence. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, cling to that which is good. To love as God loves does require hating something. It requires hating the things that God hates. What does God hate? Well, he, he hates a lying spirit. He hates a haughty spirit. He hates injustice. In order to love as God loves, you have to hate the things that God hates. That's why Paul says, let your love be genuine. The Greek word there translated genuine is anupokritos. It means without a mask. In, in, in Greek culture, when they would put on a play, you've heard of the famous Greek plays, whether it was a tragedy or a comedy, you always knew by the mask that the players on the stage wore. So they were hiding their true self by putting on that mask. And what Paul was saying is that true love cannot wear a mask. You have to take the mask off. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be real. Not saying, but not believing. Now, the word translated here as genuine is sometimes translated as sincere. Let love be sincere. And some of your translations may even have that. Let love be sincere. That's an interesting word, too. It means oven tested. And that's actually closer to the word that Paul uses here in Philippians when he says, with discernment, that you may prove what is excellent, pure, and blameless pure and blameless. What he means is oven-tested. Now, what does that mean? In the ancient world, in the first century, one of the major industries was pottery making. You know, they didn't have corrugated boxes in those days. They didn't have plastic containers and that sort of thing. Everything had to be moved about or shipped about in pottery containers, whether it was grain, wine, whatever. 
Now, pottery making is a delicate process, and there were times when a piece would be fired in the kiln and it would crack. Now, if it cracked and you were using it to transport wine or something like that, particularly some sort of fluid, well, then it was worthless. And so what you should do is throw the pot out. But there were some dishonest merchants who would take wax. They would melt down wax, smear it into the cracks, and then paint over it and sell it to unsuspecting buyers who would go out, take hot water or some sort of fluid, put it there in the, in the container or put the container out in the sun. And what would happen? The wax would melt and the pot would leak. And so reputable merchants began to stamp on the bottom of their pottery the word sine sera, sun tested, oven tested, from which we get the word sincere. So what Paul is saying to us is that our love has to be sincere, oven tested, not waxed over, not appearing to be something that it is not. So he wants us to have love, but he wants it to be a very specific kind of love, loving the things that God loves, hating the things that God hates, pure and blameless in the eyes of the world. Here's the third thing that Paul asks for in his prayer for the Philippians, that they might be fruitful. Verse 11, I want you to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul wants them to abound in love. He wants that love to be discerning, and he wants it to be sincere. He wants them to be pure and blameless. No charge brought against them by the world. world might not like them, but can't accuse them of being insincere but he also wants them to live fruitful lives. He wants them to make a difference in the world. And he describes it as the fruit of righteousness. Now, two things when Paul's talking about the fruit of righteousness. He's talking about an internal righteousness, and he's talking about an external righteousness. The fruit of righteousness means the result of a right relationship with Christ. That word righteous, that's what it means. It doesn't mean simply somebody who lives a perfect life or a holy life. It means somebody who is in a right relationship with God. So when Paul talks about the fruit of righteousness, certainly one of the things that he's talking about is the result of the Spirit's presence in your life. In Galatians chapter 5, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, those are the fruit of the Spirit. When God the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He begins to remake you in the image of Jesus Christ. He begins to transform you evermore into the image of Christ. That's what real salvation is. Salvation is not just getting your ticket punched and going to heaven when you die. To be saved means to be transformed into the image of Christ. That is the greatest good in Paul's mind, to be Christ-like. That's what he was striving for, and he's telling the Philippians that's what they should be striving for. Indeed, that's what he's praying, that they may be 
little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, little Christ. Somebody has said that for some people, you are their first encounter with Jesus Christ. And the question is this, when you encounter people who are unbelievers, do they see in you, in your demeanor, in your actions, in the way you speak, do they see the person and the character of Jesus Christ? Do they see love, the kind of love that Paul is talking about here? Do they see joy, not happiness, which is dependent on your circumstances, but true joy? Do they see peace? Peace might very well be translated as serenity. That even though the world may be going to hell in a handbasket, you still have that peace which passes human understanding. That's one of the things that was so attractive about Jesus. His disciples couldn't understand why they're out in the midst of a storm, bailing like crazy for fear of sinking, and Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. He had serenity, love, joy, peace, patience. Jesus was long-suffering, kindness, little acts of kindness. We're told that on one occasion, Jesus came across the Sea of Galilee. He was exhausted. He was trying to escape the people, but when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Kindness, goodness. Jesus was often accused of healing on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were always taking him to task for that. But those were acts of goodness, you see. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness unto death. Father, if this can, cup can pass, let it be so, but not my will, but thine be done. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If there is one thing that our culture needs today, it is self-control. Paul says, I am praying that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And it's interesting, when he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't say the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. It's not like, well, some of us get love, some of us get joy, others get peace, some get kindness, some get gentleness, some get self-control. No, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's like a clump of grapes. What is being formed in us are not little virtues, but character, the character of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's praying the Philippians may have. But he's also asking that they may be filled with this fruit in such a way that others may see it. So it's an internal thing, but it's also an external thing. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, said, by their fruit you will know them. In other words, it's by the way we live our life. It is by the way that we conduct ourselves that people will know to whom we belong. Can people tell by the way you live your life that you belong to Jesus Christ? I actually know people like this. I, there are times when I'm at the grocery store or I'm at a restaurant and I just begin to talk to somebody and without them even saying anything to me, I can just tell that they're a believer. I've seen this particularly among nurses in a hospital setting. I've seen it among doctors in a hospital setting where you're having a conversation with them, and I will just at one point say, are you a Christian? And they'll say, well, yes, I am. 
And you can just tell by the way they conduct themselves, by their bedside banner, whatever it may be, is that true for you and for me? Can people tell that there's something different about us, something that is, well, otherworldly? Paul says that's what he wants from the Philippians. He wants them to have an internal righteousness. He wants that righteousness to be evident externally so that what? So that God might receive glory and praise. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent so that you may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, good works are pleasing to the Lord, but only if they're done from the right motivation. In fact, the Book of Common Prayer makes this point very clear. If you turn to the back of the Book of Common Prayer, to a section known as the 39 Articles, there is a section entitled Of Good Works. Now, let me just read these to you. Whether you're in the English Book of Common Prayer, the American Book of Common Prayer, the 39 Articles are the same. And this is what Article 12 of Good Works says. Listen closely. Albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith, there's that language, and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ because they spring out of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree is discerned by its fruit. Now, what that article is saying is our life should be filled with such good works that people can immediately tell to whom we belong. You know, you don't have to be an expert in horticulture to recognize an apple tree. If there's apples hanging on the tree, that's an apple tree. You can recognize an orange tree if it's got oranges. If a, if a tree is producing lemons, that's a lemon tree. Jesus is saying the same thing. You'll know them by their fruits. That's what this article is saying. But listen to this. This is the next article, number 13 of works before justification. That is to say, what about those good works that people do that are not the result of a relationship with Christ? They're good in the eyes of the world. They're noble and so forth. The question is, are they pleasing to God? And this is what it says. Works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his spirit are not pleasant to God. For as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither can they make men meet to receive grace or salvation. Yea, rather for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not, but that they have the nature of sin. God is not simply interested, my friends, in what we do. He is interested in why we do it. Now, here's the way I would put it to you. Valentine's Day, February the 14th. You've got a Valentine, your wife. If you go out and buy her a Valentine's Day card, and the only reason you do it is because you do not want to be in the doghouse for not doing it, do you think that's pleasing to her? Or is it more pleasing that she knows you do this because you really do love her? 
You want to bring joy into her life. See, it's not just getting the card. It's the motivation behind it. And Paul is saying the same is true for us. It's not just doing the right things. It's doing them for the right reasons. One commentator put it this way. He said, works that are done before salvation is like a child who is in his Sunday clothes, his best clothes, and it's raining outside, and his mother tells him not to go out and get dirty. And what does he do? He goes out and he jumps in the mud puddle and splatters his good clothing. And then he comes in and he realizes he's going to be in trouble. So what does he do? He goes upstairs and he makes his bed. And he immediately goes and he brushes his teeth. And he cleans up his room. And he's doing all of these good works in order to what? Earn his mother's favor. Well, when she sees all the good works that he's done, but looks at his soiled clothing, is she happy? All of the good works are not able to please his mother. What does she do? She takes him, strips him down, and washes him clean. And then she tells him to go and do his homework. That is what God does with you and me. All of our works done before we are cleansed with the blood of Christ, they're not pleasing to God. He has to first cleanse us, wash us up, make us clean, and then he sets us to work. That's what Paul is talking about here in Philippians. That's what he's praying for the Philippians. They have been washed now in the blood of that immaculate lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now he wants them to go to work, to begin to produce the fruit of righteousness, to love as Christ loved us, and for that love to be sincere and evident so that God might receive praise and glory. That's what God wants for every one of us. He wants us to be fruitful people. He wants us to live the good life. Now, that raises a question. Practically speaking, how does that happen? How does a person become fruitful? We've already had some indication, but there's a powerful picture of this given by Jesus himself in John's gospel. So keep your finger again in Philippians and turn back to John chapter 15 for a moment. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Jesus was wonderful at giving us images. And remember that the first century, Jewish culture was an agrarian culture. It was a farming culture. And so often Jesus' images are drawn from that kind of farming setting. This is a perfect example. This is what the Lord says. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Let's be honest. If you buy an apple tree and it fails to produce apples, what good is it? An apple tree is really not a good shade tree. There are better shade trees. It's not good for kindling. An apple tree is really good for one thing, isn't it? Producing apples. And if it doesn't produce apples, what good is it? That's what Jesus is saying. He said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, then he says this. He says, already you are clean. In other words, you're already in a relationship with me. 
You've been washed. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Everybody understood what Jesus was saying. If you lop off a limb from a tree, apart from the tree, the limb will what? It will perish. It will wither. Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. And then here's the most important part. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't say, apart from me, you can do some. You can do a bit. You can do a little. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you cannot bear fruit any more than the branch when it's lopped off from the vine can produce fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. This is the same language that Paul uses. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So how do we become fruitful people? This is what Paul was praying for. How does that happen? It happens first and foremost by abiding in Christ, by living in that relationship with Him on a daily basis. Now, if you're a Christian, you should begin to see Christ-like characteristics in your life. That's what Jesus meant when He said, you'll know them by their fruit. Are you seeing love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Are you beginning to see yourself grow and to begin to think with the mind of Christ, to begin to resemble Christ in your actions, in your activities? Now, you may look at your life honestly and say, well, <laughs> I'm seeing a little bit of fruit, but I'm not seeing much. Well, Jesus' whole point is, that's all right. The Father will prune you so that you will produce more fruit. The only question is, are you producing any kind of fruit? Do you see yourself desiring to be more like Christ, longing to be holy? It may mean that you sometimes fall tragically short of the mark. I'll be the first one to admit that I fall tragically short of the mark. But do you see yourself desiring, longing, striving for those things? That is the evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life. And as you begin to produce fruit, the Father will prune you that you may bear more fruit. That's what Paul is praying for here in Philippians. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God.
That's what Paul is longing for with the Philippians, and it is what he is longing for with us as well. Now, I am prepared to move on to verses 12 through 14, but it's such an important section that I think we're going to pause right there for today. I think I took you over last week by 10 minutes, so I'm going to end 10 minutes early today. But next week, when we come back, we're going to take a look at some of the things that Paul endured. Um, Remember that he was writing to a church that um, was remembering him. Paul had been forgotten by many other people. He'd been locked away in prison. It probably had been at least four years since the Philippians had had any real contact with Paul. And they were worried about him. And I suspect that when they received this letter, they probably, if they were anything like me, they probably read right through these first few verses that we've been studying with with, with such detail. But they rushed right through to where they begin to hear something about Paul. How's he doing? How are things going with him? Is he well? Is he sick? What's going on? And Paul gives them some of that autobiographical material. He talks about his imprisonment. And we're going to ask the question, why does God allow suffering? Paul was a great planner. And I can tell you right now, this was not part of his plan to be locked away, to be caged up. Paul must have been like a caged lion there in Rome. This man of tremendous activity, this man who had this burning desire to take the gospel to as many people as possible, and here he is in the prime of his life, locked away in fetters, like a caged lion prowling back and forth, just longing to be set loose. Why would God allow that to happen to Paul? And why does God allow that kind of suffering sometimes to come into our lives, those kinds of disappointments? We think we could be so much more profitable for God if he would just open the cage and let us out. We're going to take a look at what God is doing, sometimes even in the bleakest of circumstances. Paul began to see with the eyes of faith that God is capable of using even the darkest of circumstances, the most disappointing of situations, for his glory and for his honor. You know, somebody once said, the only difference between a catastrophe and an opportunity is a matter of attitude. That was the way Paul looked at things. The only difference between a catastrophe and an opportunity was a matter of attitude. And that's what we'll take a look at next week. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful prayer that Paul prays at the beginning of Philippians. It's what he longed for It's what he wanted to see in the lives of these people that were so dear to his heart. And it is what he longs to see in us. It's what you long to see in us. You long for us to be fruitful people, people who look and sound like Jesus Christ, who have that internal righteousness, but a righteousness that flows over in our actions and the things that we do outwardly. And is so different, so attractive that people who do not even know us are are drawn to us. And in coming to know us, come to know him, whom to know is life everlasting. Grant this, we pray, Lord, for the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you. And um, I will 
see you around campus. Um, if not around campus, God willing, we'll see you next week via Zoom.